If you have an elementary age child, get ready because things are going to go even deeper for them uh, biblically this fall. One of the, the, my favorite scriptures is uh, Matthew 4.4 4 that says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on the living, breathing word of God. And this Wednesday night program is built on that truth, that we instill the word of God into the lives of students so that they could actually live and that they would be able to succeed in life based on their understanding and um, alignment with Scripture. And you may think, well, I don't work well with kids. Whatever your gift mix is, if you are motivated to serve, there is an opportunity with Ignite for you to serve. You may find that the thing that you are most afraid of is the place that God needs you most and that your fear is actually a reality of a platform for you to influence and the fear is from opposition not from the way you're wired. So pray about and think about your uh, willingness to serve in the Ignite ministry as well as other areas of our children's ministry that are really going to take off this fall and be watching in your bulletin and from this stage to hear of great opportunities for our children's ministry. Um, this morning, Jeff is here. He is present in the building and he's still not preaching, which is very interesting for Jeff Greer because he loves to teach and he is great at it. But this fall, there is a sermon series and an actual movement of our church that is going to be so big, he wanted to take this Sunday off and prepare the message series for this fall. It is going to transform this church. I believe that because the storyline of where he's going is already transforming lives around him. That's called a tease. Consider yourselves teased to be here this fall because it's going to be good. It's going to be different. It's going to be transforming. It may be overwhelming at times, but it is going to speak to the issues that we need to champion the culture around us. Are you teased yet? Um, will you be here in September now? And you're like, wow, I'm going to be challenged in September. I can just tune Chris out for the rest of the morning because I'm about to get spiritual content next month and I can just sleep through the rest of the service. Um, I encourage you not to do that. Because this morning, I want to talk about a very important biblical truth that God wants us as a church uh, to be able to wrap our minds around, ignite our hearts through, and to come in alignment with. But before I get into this important truth, I want to ask that you would just spend a moment in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I pray in the next few moments that you would have control of this room, that we would willingly give our hearts and minds over to you to be taught to be trained. We acknowledge that your word is truth, that in the beginning you are the word and that you continue to be the word. And God, we sit at the feet of your word in the next few moments and ask that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts to true understanding of your truth. And that not only would we understand it, but that we would willingly align with it that our passion for you would burn deeper because of it, that chains would be broken that have inhibited us from knowing the fullness of your glory in our lives. And then in the next few moments, your truth would be spoken clearly, concisely, and in honorable ways to you. It's only through Christ that we can gather here as your bride and to listen to your word and to know your truth. And we give you praise for him. It's through him that we pray. Amen. 
knowing that Jeff was going to be gone uh, or to, to take a moment away from teaching and to be able to give someone else a platform to teach today, I was excited to get the invitation until I heard the theme. The theme of this morning, because of an opportunity we're having in the fall of a night of worship and baptism, is to teach about baptism. And uh, that is a hard topic to teach on. It's a hard topic for me personally because I have an interesting background on baptism. I was born into a Methodist church. Um, my parents were attending a Methodist church. That's where my mom had grown up. So when I was born, Methodist movement, I was sprinkled as an infant in the Methodist church. By the time I was two, my parents had transitioned to an independent church of Christ. I don't know what all that means. Um, independent of what, to what, for what, I don't know. But they were independent of something. Um, and they were Church of Christ, which was good to know that they were a Church of Jesus. And we transitioned there, and at six years old, I confessed Jesus as my Lord and Savior and was baptized into him as a personal decision. My father baptized me and, uh, in this small country church that used to be a barn in Maysville, Kentucky. And then I grew up in, through high school knowing a very legalist Church of Christ mindset in considering doctrine of the church and the Trinity and baptism and spiritual disciplines. I then went to college at Cincinnati Bible College, then at Cincinnati Christian University now, where I was trained in a restoration movement philosophy based on the teachings of Thomas Campbell and B.W. Stone. Their tagline is, where scripture speaks, we speak. Where scripture is silent, we are silent. That's the tagline of the restoration movement. I there, going into my sophomore year, met my wife who had grown up in a Baptist church uh, where her grandfather was a Baptist pastor and she had grown up in, in, until high school when she started attending an evangelical free church and then went to college in a restoration movement university. We're a hot mess in our house when it comes to spirituality. I mean, just a train wreck. Because all of those view baptism differently. Sprinkle, immerse, you're saved only at the moment that you're baptized. You're a member of a church when you're baptized. Salvation has nothing to do with it. If you add my Pentecostal friends into the discussion that I have, because I have a lot of them, uh, it's, it's insane. The background that I have concerning baptism. And so to have a discussion on baptism, I first thought, whoa, my background is a mess. And I want to encourage you this morning, maybe your background's a mess. Maybe you were born Catholic into a Catholic movement. You transitioned into an evangelical free, a Baptist, Southern Baptist, which is different than a Baptist. I don't know. They're the Methodist. I don't know what your background is. Maybe you have no background, and this is your background. You've come to hope, to grace. That's like a weird thing. I just called this place Hope. That was an accident. This is Grace Chapel. <laughs> My bad. I should pray for repentance on that one maybe. Um, this is Grace Chapel. And maybe your story started here. And you don't have a background. And that's your background. Whatever your background is, I want to invite you as we start this discussion this morning to take a step back from your background so that as a church we can investigate what Scripture says about this repetitive, inclusive 
thing, spiritual discipline, however you want to define it, as baptism in the New Testament that seems to be a hang-up for denominational differences, but in Scripture seems to have some type of spiritual weight that we could take a step back from our backgrounds and be able to search Scripture. I've had to do that in my life because when I grew up in the church, the Church of Christ, I remember sitting in a pastor's office, in a minister's office, is what they title their leaders there. And he got a phone call from a high school student who had said, my mother is dying. She's in a hospital. I just told her about Jesus, and she just confessed him, and she wants to be baptized, but she's confined to a bed. What do I do? And I heard the minister say, we believe in full immersion here at this church, so I can't help you. I'm sorry, son. Your mother's not going to go to heaven. That happened. And I'm sitting there going, that can't be right. The God of grace, Jesus Christ would say, because you are dying of cancer on a bed and you confess me with your mouth, but you can't walk into the church, into the holy water of a baptistry. You can't be baptized. They said, who was that? He said, it was this high school student. And so I called the high school student. And the thought popped into my mind, hey, how do they bathe her at the hospital? If she wants to be baptized and she is going to find that alignment with God through baptism, figure out how they bathe her and just bathe her in the name of Jesus. Have the nurses come in and do it if there's a safety issue. She said, would you come give my mom a bath and I'm going to do something spiritual around it. Is that okay with you? And if not, Jesus accepts us for our confession. John 3.16 says, whoever believes in me will have eternal life and will not perish. So this high school kid's like, okay, I'm going to do it. He did it. But I grew up in the setting of high school where the, the concept was if you confess Christ and walk up toward the baptistry and you die on the steps, catch your toe, break your neck on the way up, you go to hell. That's the theology I grew up in. I'm giving you that as context for where I'm coming from. And then I met my wife. When I met my wife, she had confessed Jesus the beginning of her high school years, she had gone to a, a ministry performance and had heard the gospel message and confessed Jesus. She was then baptized two years later when she heard about it the first time. She was standing on a beach. Pastor Matt Massey was teaching on baptism. There was an ocean. He taught. She responded and said, well, I hadn't heard of that before. I thought, I thought it was just for church membership. She stood up and was baptized. She told me that story, and my Church of Christ mind was all messed up. So I'm like, what have you been doing for the last two years? Well, I was part of a Christian ministry group that traveled around, and hundreds of people came to Christ because of the performances that we did on stage and then the testimony that we gave after. And I'm like, that sounds like spiritual fruit, but you should be spiritually dead if you weren't baptized in the water. So how do you, how do you have spiritual fruit if you were still going to hell in those two years? That doesn't work for me in my mind because my Church of Christ background was my block and said she should have been going to hell during those, t those two years. But practical life experience, the litmus test of she confessed Christ, she produced spiritual fruit, and when she, un she knew baptism, she came into alignment with baptism. I have to acknowledge that she was a believer in those two years. And she just shared me in the break between uh, messages. She was like, but you know, I, she came from the other lens. She 
didn't understand baptism from a, a Baptist movement. She thought it was just each church that you go to in the Baptist movement. You have to be baptized into that church because it's for church membership. So she never did. She didn't understand. She was like, I'm just a believer. I'm not part of this particular church. I want to be part of the church. And she hadn't been baptized. And then she's on this beach and hears about baptism and she becomes baptized. And then she goes to this restoration movement college and she said, I heard, I went to the Acts class, and the first things that they said in Acts class was, uh, you're not saved until the moment of baptism. And she said, so at that time, she'd grown up in Jeff's youth ministry. She's knocking on Jeff's door going, I don't even know if I'm a believer anymore, because they just told me that if I wasn't baptized, I go to hell. And then she started dating me, and I'm questioning everything, and she's questioning everything, and we're a mess. And so my understanding of baptism came not through the church as the authority, but scripture as the authority. And this morning, I want to invite you to that journey together, that we would take a journey through scripture as the authority on baptism. And at the end, we would come to a joyous agreement on what baptism is for the believer. Imagine with me for a minute that you grow up in a scenario where there are all of these world religions around you, yet there is one that when the people of this religion are gathered together and stand as a nation, no one's ever been able to stop them. When divided and conquered, they seem to be able to be held at bay. But even when they're divided and conquered, the ones who live to this religion seem to be respectful. They have this moral code that makes them stand out and different. They gather together for prayer on regular basis. They teach one another. They share things with one another. And it's intriguing to you as to how this community functions and what the, the aspects of this religion is. That was how the world viewed the nation of Israel and the Jewish religion. When together, an unstoppable force. And so nations try to divide it and separate it. Because if you could get the nation of Israel together in alignment with their God, they weren't stopped in history. If you could get them divided or worshiping an idol like your God, you could keep them at bay. And that was good for your kingdom. But the people within this moral code, these laws, seem to live differently. And there were people that were not Jewish, that would be Gentiles, anything but a Jew, that were walking around asking Jews, hey, this God that you serve, is it just for you or can, can I worship that God? And typically, a Jew would say, I don't know the answer to that. Let me take you to a teacher of the law. And they would go to the temple gates, to the front court of the temple, and approach a teacher of the law and say, this is a Gentile. He wants to know, can he be part of our religion and know Yahweh God. And the teacher of the law would say, yes, he can. Let's get the hard one out of the way first. Number one, you have to, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know this one hurts if you're a guy. You have to be circumcised. If you don't know what that is, study it on your own. I'm not talking about it here. You have to be circumcised, which is a very painful act for a, an adult man. And the man would say, you have to be circumcised first. Second, you have to acknowledge that the law of Moses is the law from God. Third, you have to throw a big feast. Fourth, you exemplify your death to Gentileness and new life as a Jew by going into a cistern and bathing yourself, washing yourself. And by giving this to someone who 
was Greek-speaking, Aramaic-speaking, if the, the leader uh, or the, the interpreter of this Jewish law, the teacher, were to give him notes, for the last one he would have said, and then you go and baptizo yourself in a cistern. You go baptize. You go wash, immerse. Because baptizo is the Greek word for baptism that is used not just in scripture, but in all historical writings. There's one uh, Greek writing that says a, sh- a boat was shipwrecked or was uh, submerged in water. And it uses the Greek term, it was baptizoed in the water. It was submerged or immersed in water. It wasn't viewed culturally as a sacrament to a religion, it was viewed as a common word to wash. But for some reason in the New Testament, when translated, because translated into English, decisions about baptism had already been divided, the word was transliterated instead of translated. And so instead of translated into washed or immersed or submerged, the New Testament in all but one place translated baptizo of a new word that is not English or Greek, but is a created word in and of itself called baptism. And so we have an issue because it's now something that we have to add a definition to instead of using the defined word and keeping it true. If you have your Bible, you can look at Luke chapter uh, 11, verses 37 and 38 as an example of how Scripture did not imply that baptizo was only for a spiritual moment. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. The Greek word for wash in this context, the only place in the New Testament, is a... uh, the word baptizo. Well, that would change our theology completely if they had said baptism here. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first baptize before dinner. What would we as denominations have done with that? Before you eat dinner together, you need to baptize somebody. Otherwise, if you don't baptize before dinner, you can't eat. We would, it sounds hilarious, but we would have taken it there. I mean, denominate, we would have battled on it. Are you supposed to baptize full immersion before dinner? Can it be after dinner? Can you have an appetizer first? We're, you know, we got to beat the Baptist to lunch, so we got to baptize you know, after church before we can have church on Sunday. Is it only Sundays? Does it mean the Sabbath? What's it mean? What day are you allowed to baptize before dinner? But no, for some reason, theologians translated this baptizo into wash and all the other ones into the transliterated, transliterated word baptize. But it simply means, baptism defined simply means to wash, immerse, submerge. I would encourage you as you do your own individual studies on baptism, and it's really easy, go to BibleGateway.com or any other Bible search engine and just type in baptism and you'll see a whole list of New Testament words that illustrate baptism in the New Testament. And if you were to go through those and replace the actual word in baptism, would your theology change? Would it change the way you view life? Because here the word 
baptizo was given to a Gentile that wanted to become Jewish, and it was stated, go into the cistern and wash yourself. And if someone was walking by and they had seen this Gentile standing in a cistern washing themselves, and they were Jewish, they may say something like, welcome to the brotherhood. Welcome to the the one true God. Welcome to our community. You are now Jewish, and we view you as Jewish, even though you look Gentile on the outward appearance. You are Jewish. Welcome to the family. And he would be embraced as part of the family of the kingdom of God because of his outward expression that people walking by would say, look at that man washing himself in the cistern. That's really weird unless we connect it with the fact that he is, he is symbolizing his death to his old self and his resurrection to something new. He is becoming, aligning himself with something new. Then while all of these Gentiles are, being, are standing in cisterns washing themselves, a voice cries out from the wilderness. And he, this voice is standing in the Jordan River saying, Repent, one is coming with, whose shoes I am not worthy to stand in. Come, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Come here. And John is standing in water. And these crowds of people are coming to this man in camel hair who's eating honey and locusts. Matthew chapter 3. And he is saying, come. And when they get there and they hear this message from a Jewish leader to majority Jewish culture, he says, repent. Be baptized. For one who is greater than I is coming. And these people start to walk into the water. What do we do? He says, you don't wash yourself, I dunk you. It's the first time in history that we have a baptizer, a washer. And in a New Testament, correctly translated, we now have John the washer. It's not John the Baptist. So the Baptists no longer have one up on us. Okay, they don't have someone in the Bible named after us. Church of Christ movement, they had John the Baptist. We had the first Church of Christ. That was our name there. We had to win that battle. And I don't know how we became the first Church of Christ. We were only 75 years old. I think the first one's older than that, um, a little bit. And, but this concept that he is Jesus, John the Baptist isn't true. He's, he's John the washer because he was the first one to be seen who is actually washing other people. And as the crowd is gathered and there's people around And there's people being washed for the forgiveness of their sins, but not this gift of eternal life. They're washed because they are coming into an alignment that the old life I was living isn't good enough. I am in agreement with this new life that someone, a Messiah, is coming. I agree to that statement, and I want to be set apart as someone who believes in that. And then as the crowds gathered... John stops baptizing and looks up. Through the crowd, behind the, the mixture, people that are there, everyone starts to look. Jesus starts to walk down the beach into the water. He walks up to John. Cousin, I need you to baptize me. John's response Cousin, no. I need you to baptize me. Because you're the one. Jesus, I know. John, I need you to baptize me. You baptize me. No, no. You baptize me. They're cousins. Imagine cousins in the water. No, John, 
as one who is more powerful than you, baptize me now. No, no, Jesus. I've come to prepare the way, so you baptize me. Baptize me in the name. Okay. So John baptizes Jesus for his salvation? No. What did Jesus need saved from? For his alignment to what John was teaching. Jesus is baptized as an example of saying, what John is teaching, I affirm and am a part of. I partner with that. He is teaching that one is coming, and I'm teaching that that one is here, and that I am him. But by John baptizing Jesus instead of the opposite way, Jesus is submitting himself to the teaching of John, saying, this is right and true, and I'm in alignment with that. But then Jesus doesn't stay there and say, okay, now I've been baptized, so everyone come and be baptized by John. And I will watch it and oversee it. Jesus leaves and in John chapter 3, 22, we have that Jesus moves on after he calls his disciples. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Jesus moves this concept of washing, of alignment with him from John's story, what he is sharing as a new way of life, to now the gospel is here. Align with me. And if we started to take a look at the New Testament through that lens, it might change the way that we look at baptism. Baptism isn't something just for Christians. It was something that was happening in nations. It was something that was practiced, this washing that was a reflection of a commitment to say, I am ending my old life and partnering with something that is new. And the something that I'm partnering with is the teaching of the one who is baptizing me. Under his name. So this flow of teaching unveils not a salvation at baptism, but unveils a public alignment with the teaching and the truth of whose name that you're being baptized in. And you get that concept. It's a little different. It might be different than any denomination you've ever heard of, but it is a decision to say, I am not aligned with the old life. I am aligned with this new life. And if you want to know what it is, look to whose name I was baptized into. Because that's the teaching of the new life. That's who you can align me with. And it was a time of celebration because people who were being baptized into this, who were being washed as a reflection of this, were now becoming a community because they could look at one another and say, you were washed by Jesus. You align with his teaching. So I can align with you and we can become community. Paul uses it later with a, a group of people who were baptized by John in Acts chapter 19. Paul makes it to Ephesus. He's getting into Europe and he sees these disciples there who are preaching and teaching a gospel, but they're preaching and teaching that the good news is coming. They left before Jesus went to the cross and they get into Europe and they're saying, this message of repentance, repent in the name of God and, and you will be saved because another one is coming who is great. And Paul gets there and says, who? Who are you baptized by? And they said, oh, we've got is John's teaching. He's like, no, 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 you missed it. The one came and he died and he resurrected. Let me talk talk to you about it. You need to change because your alignment was with John. And I want you to know that Jesus came and those men right there were like, the one came? Well, let's align with his teaching. And they were baptized right there. Because the teaching 
had changed for them. It's exciting to know. They heard John's gospel and they just take off to become missionaries. The word hadn't gotten to them. Jesus went to the cross. Paul's mindset in that moment, you know, and his intelligence asked, like, who are you baptized by? John? See, that's the, that's the question for us. To, his real question is, who are you aligned with? Whose teaching are you reflecting? John's teaching. Oh, I get why you're not filled with the Holy Spirit right now. Because John promised Jesus. Jesus promises indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, here's Jesus. They're baptized. Paul lays hands on them. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's how the story went. It happened. Because Jesus' story is empowerment by the Holy Spirit. But this story can get so messed up for us. Maybe that changes the way you think about it. One of the big passages about baptism from my background, my traditional background, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. If you want to turn to that with me, you can. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I've heard in many circles that that story, that illustration of Scripture that Paul is teaching to these Romans who want to believe, that that Scripture that illustrates that this Jesus took a beating, 39 lashes with a whip of his cat of nine tails that had meat to tender, or uh, um, uh, steel to tender the skin and bone to break it, that destroyed his back down to his legs, That this Jesus that was then crowned with a crown of thorns that began to shed his blood down his broken body. That this Jesus that was then given a cross to carry on that torn, ravaged, destroyed back. To carry it miles up the hill. To be thrown onto that cross. To have seven to nine inch stakes driven between his wrists and his feet and then hoisted up in the air to hang amid the mocking, amid the disdain, the spitting, the abuse, as Isaiah says, the rebuked face, that we would know him that, esteem him not, Isaiah's words. That this Jesus that was hung like that on this cross, that would then breathe his last, die of asphyxiation, a last breath, because his 
Ribs are compounded. He can't pull himself up for a breath. If he slumps down, he's on staked feet that are in through his, his ankles that he can't, he can't find any peace in his physical body. And even higher than that, he's now not only carrying the physical burden of this punishment, but the weight of sin and death. All of judgment and wrath of God is poured out on his spirit heavily weighing on him that this scripture of Romans chapter 6 would be simplified to say, you know what? And until you're baptized, you're not saved. It's not about that. This illustration that Paul is saying is, do you align with the fact that that burden on that cross was enough for you and that you didn't just die with him on crucifixion? You raised up with his resurrection. Live resurrected lives. Live as if you believe that Jesus was crucified for your sins and that for a weekend he pummeled that sin, overcame it, annihilated Satan, condemned him for eternity and was able to bind him up and say, you will be bound for eternity and you can't touch those who believe me. Now rise up, church. That's what the passage is about. Baptism is a reflection of saying those who were washed in that truth can't be touched. They don't die. You don't die. Are you saved at baptism? No. Scripture over and over. John 3.16 Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When you claim the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior... You are saved. Paul is illustrating here. When you claim him, you have this life. And your claiming shouldn't just be inward, but also outward. So be washed. Be set aside as part of the bride of Christ. The being set apart in that moment of this external baptism doesn't save you. The blood of Jesus is all you need to be saved. So now publicly align yourself with it and say, hey, you can't kill me. And every morning when you wake up feeling like you're still chained to sin, Paul is saying, live a resurrected life. It doesn't mean that we abound in sin. It means we've conquered sin through Christ because your junk was crucified with my junk. He didn't carry the full burden for us to keep carrying the full burden. He carried the full burden for us to be free. For us to be able to chase God with resurrected life, to be able to live with reckless abandon. You can't kill me. I'm eternal now. I had a beginning, but I have no ending. I will praise God for all of eternity. And it's not to egg Satan on. It's to get up when I get knocked down. We're taught this truth so that when we get punched in the face, because we will, that we get back up we don't get up and say, I wonder if I was really saved. We get back up and say, I get knocked down because I have a spiritual enemy. I get up because I'm resurrected. I get up because I can't die. So there's no point in me laying here and acting dead. I get up because you can't kill me. That's baptism. Is that alignment with that new story publicly you're saying i'm part of that team i'm in that church i am that bride and baptism is a celebration 
not necessarily for salvation, but a celebration of the kingdom of God getting bigger and bigger and more powerful so that the kingdom on earth will look like the kingdom in heaven. Not only will we be saved by our confession, but that we will be a unified bride of Christ saying, you guys, I saw you get washed. I saw you. You're, you're part of us now. Welcome to the family. Let's go win some more. Let's get out there and change the world because we are washed by the blood of Christ. And it's amazing that our baptism is a reflection. And Peter uh, reflects this. Paul reflects this. That when you're immersed, it has a reflection of old life into new life. Because that's what washing does. It didn't just become spiritual. It just is. When you're washed, you become clean. It's just basics. So when you're washed, become clean. But become clean differently. Become clean in an ever a resurrected life that you're in alignment with of saying, I'm clean, you can't do anything about it, and it's public. Maybe this morning, baptism is something you need to consider. There is no biblical precedent for infant baptism or, or sprinkling for children. If you have a, a background in Methodist movement, like I have, Catholic movement, I would encourage you to ask those leaders if you're aligned with that or struggling now with the biblical precedent of that for their biblical definition of that. But biblically, God has always called us to a free will decision to choose Him as Savior and then to align with His teaching. And baptism is a free will decision. So if you chose, if your parents chose for you as an infant, it doesn't negate that. I dedicated my daughter to God when she was born. I said, but that was more for me and my wife and our covenant with God. We will raise her up in accordance with your New Testament covenant with us under the blood of Christ that we live in. We will do the best that we can to offer her the choice of you. And we commit that, God, you can hold us accountable. We acknowledge it for the discipleship of your little princess, Sonny Cox. And that's great if your parents did that for you. But it wasn't your decision. You confessed Christ. You choose to be washed and to be part of this family. If that's you, this Wednesday, we have a session on baptism here at Grace Chapel. September 20th, we're going to have a worship and baptism night. That's going to be a party. You can't help but be a party. Baptisms are celebrations, public acknowledgement of whose kingdom I'm in. You think, I'm not sure, I'm not sure about even that theology. Sometimes I'm not sure if the Holy Spirit is directly connected with baptism or not. There's some implication in the New Testament, Acts 2.38, that there's a connection between the Holy Spirit and baptism. I'm cloudy on that in my understanding of the New Testament. I know that believers are guaranteed an indwelling of the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16. Jesus says it. Acts 2.38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are times where the gift of the Holy Spirit partners baptism. There are other times where the gift of the Holy Spirit precedes baptism. There are the other times where baptism happens and the Holy Spirit doesn't show up and other people have to show up and bring the Holy Spirit in. It's true. It's in Scripture. I'm cloudy on that, but here's what I'm not cloudy on is even if I'm not sure completely where the Holy Spirit is connected with baptism, I'm sure of this. 
In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus commanded, Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And surely I am, and commanding them to teach, or, and teach them the commandments, all that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always until the very end of the age. Worst case scenario, as believers, we're told to baptize people and we're told to be washed. I teach my daughter that my why can't be the basis of her decision. I hope I'm wiser than her. She's three. I should be. I should know more. I should have her interests at my heart. And I should be willing to die for her and sacrifice myself to raise her up in the kingdom of God. So her yes should be out of obedience to trusting me, not to my validation of an answer. So we teach her, yes, daddy. Then she can ask why if she wants to. Because I want her to learn. And I should have a why. Sometimes the why is because I said so. And that should be okay. And baptism for you may be a yes, daddy, why? And it's yes, daddy, because he says, do it. And the why is continuing to unveil for you. He's continuing to unfold the why. And that's okay. That's spiritual growth. But it's an act of obedience? Absolutely. Jesus commanded it. And when you confessed him as Lord and Savior, you asked to be commanded. You invited a king, not a slave, into your life. And so when he says, go make disciples and baptize people and teach them, you don't say, why? Then I'll say, yes. We say, yes, daddy. And then our why gets answered. But from what we've learned today, an acknowledgement that you are declaring allegiance to this teaching of Jesus is biblical and is true. So that the take home, confess Jesus, let him be your Lord and Savior, claim the resurrected life, make a public allegiance to that confession through your baptism and celebrate as part of the family of kingdom of God and enter into it so that we can become a global force that brings the kingdom to he- of heaven to earth. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would continue to teach us as we leave this place, that you would hone our understandings, that you would gently nurture our backgrounds to understand your biblical truth on baptism. But more so, God, I pray for resurrected lives to be lived out, that we would not allow a tool of Satan a feeling of guilt, a presence of fear in our lives to hinder us from accepting the death of your son as well as the resurrection. And that in this place, we would be a group of people, a bride that publicly declares we're married to you. And praise you for your story. And I pray now that the Holy Spirit would counsel us encourage us and nurture our understanding of you. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we now live as we walk out these doors. Amen and amen. Have a great week.